Uh, our, our groups, some of our groups are out at uh, McCrary Meadows and uh, serving breakfast and, of course, uh, a helping of Jesus along the way. And so um, we're glad that they're out there and uh, we're glad that you're here. As we get to today, I will say this, that I wrote this to my neighborhood group because I knew that they were going to be out in McCrary Meadows. Uh, it's Law Meadow Farms 2 and Pecan Lakes that are out at McCrary Meadows uh, serving the people there. And I wrote to my neighborhood group and I said, hey, if you can, you might want to hurry back. Uh, I don't normally say that. I usually say be fully present, but if you can, come back today because this is, uh, to say that this is one of the more, un, like, more important sermons that I have preached in a long time is an understatement uh, because this is the heart uh, of a beautiful response to resurrection. These characters that we're talking about today have been in the forefront of our story for the last now two to three weeks and uh, it's this beautiful response of what has happened in their town when Jesus came to town, when he resurrected his buddy Lazarus from the dead. But before we get into all that, let me first remind us all of what the book of John is all about. These things, including John chapter 12, these things are written so that, John would say at the end of his book, these things are written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one. AKA the son of God. He is the one that was to come and that by believing you may have life in his name. There'll be parts today that you think, man, that sounds a little bit like death. No, no, it is life. Jesus assured it, he sealed it, and John is now delivering it through this word today. So as they just read, uh, let me uh, kind of get us into the context of where we are in the book of John. If we have been absent or we've just slept in the last couple of weeks, which I hope you have, like I was just encouraged by Psalm 127 that God gives sleep to those he loves uh, because I slept in way late this morning. God, I was going to get up like way before 6 a.m. and kind of, kind of just settle in on this manuscript or this outline that I have, and I just blew right past my alarm. And, uh, and that's a beautiful thing, because now we all have to trust that the Lord's doing something good uh, amongst our midst. Uh, so, but this is, what, uh, this is what the Bible says, right? It says it's six days before Passover. This is mere hours before Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. So don't think like the, this, this, uh, the triumphal entry is just gonna happen in April. It will, but it's also gonna happen next week for us as we continue on in the book of John. And so for the next six months just about, we will be in the last week of Jesus's life. That's how much time and attention and detail that John the gospel writer gives for Jesus' last week on the earth. From John 13 all the way to near the end, uh, I say near the end because there is that part about the resurrection that we will celebrate come Easter. But this is, uh, this is this great thing. So this is, let me just reread it. Uh, one and two. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was and whom Jesus had raised from the dead. It's interesting that in John chapter 11, it says where Lazarus was, or Lazarus, the one whom you love, is dying. Now, it's where Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Verse two, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. So whereas Jesus was in the desert in verse 54 and verse 55, what we know is that he had to walk out of Bethany. He had to escape the Jews that were now trying to put him to death. And so he kind of goes out into isolation for a little bit. And now he returns to Bethany where he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. We don't know how long ago that was. 
but we do know that the distance between Jerusalem and Bethany was about two miles, and all of a sudden, anywhere between about 100 or 125,000 people are flowing into Jerusalem from all directions for Passover. That's important for us because you gotta know that Bethany was one of those places that people would have stopped. People would have heard about this guy named Lazarus who was risen from the dead recently. So Jesus jumps back in and as a result, they throw him a party. I love that they throw Jesus a party. They have a dinner for him and they're like, man, it's Passover time. It's about to go down. We got to celebrate up in here. This man just raised our brother, or, or Lazarus himself, from the dead. And as we look into this, what I just already said was this, that these same players have been in the forefront of our story for going on three weeks. But today, something is different about them. Yes, they're doing some of the very similar things that we have seen them do, but there's something different here in this text. I hope that we can see that they have made some progress in our three weeks. For them, it could have been months. The first thing that we know for Martha, like she does, she does what Martha does. Like Aaron wrote yesterday, does that girl ever learn? And I would say yes, that girl learned big time. Because in Luke 10, we see a Martha, the Bible says, is distracted with much serving. And in John 12, it just says Martha served. Now she's not distracted. Now she's just serving. Something happened as a result of resurrection in her. Resurrection has fueled a devotion in her. That now, yes, before she was distracted with much serving, in John 11 you find her proactively seeking Jesus. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But now we see Martha. No rebuke from Jesus no expectation from her that others join her in the kitchen. No expectation that Jesus would rebuke Mary for just sitting and not serving. Now she just serves freely. See, it's not that serving is bad. Most of the time we, we read about Mary and Martha and we all go, oh man, Martha, I got that in me. I just need to learn to just sit and, and worship Jesus at his feet. And we do. We do. But there's also this part of serving that resurrection will help us be devoted to Jesus in, not just in either or, but both and. And so some of us need to serve and not expect others to do the things that we would want them to do. Friday night, we had a leadership development night where Will Walker came in and he gave us great understandings of like six, six thieves of joy. And one of them was entitlement. And I just was like, does it have to be the first one? I don't need to read the rest of the page. That's mine. Because I'm very much like Martha. There was this entitlement that other people would serve like she served. And somehow, in the midst of John 11 and now 12, she has learned to accept who she is. She's also learned to accept who everybody else is, that they will serve and they will worship the way that they are called to worship. The resurrection fueled her devotion into serving the best way possible without expectation or entitlement that demands others do what she did. For those of us that are in here that are used to setting up, tearing down, doing the hard work of ministry, week in and week out, doing neighborhood groups, or what, in, in any capacity, leading people spiritually, or leading other people in teaching, or in work, or at the hospital, whatever it is that you do. There can be this entitlement that creeps in on us, but Martha simply serves here. So I would say this, so if you serve, and that's the way that your worship really gets expressed with your hands, 
serve. Let others rest. Be great, but for those of you that, that rest and don't necessarily serve, be grateful to those who serve. But this cannot go on in perpetuity. I just used a big word. So that won't be the last one. It cannot go on continuously. At some point, you who like to learn need to get your hands dirty so that those who like to get their hands dirty can go and worship Jesus at his feet. Otherwise, they will end up condemning you in their hearts. It's, an, it's, it's a both and. It's a give and take, a push and pull. It's not just, oh, well, they just need to work on that on their hearts. No, you actually need to help. Or they need to rest. It's both and, not either or. Otherwise, there will be accusation. And so we've got to learn to be able to, to work with one another. Martha does this very well right here. She has learned quite a bit. We also pick up on this second character. Not just Martha is mentioned. Martha served. There's so much in those two words. But also Lazarus was one of those reclining with Jesus at table. I find this fascinating. I also enjoyed how Aaron put it yesterday that he's, he's laid up in a recliner. Uh, it's a very American way to think about this. But if we, if we see what first century Israel would have been about, there would have been a table near the floor and they would have been leaning on one elbow with their feet outward and eating with the other hand. That's pretty much how they ate. And so when we're talking about reclining with Jesus at table, they're, kind of, they're just laid out and that's pretty much how they would eat. On one elbow, laid out, eating with the other hand. So they're gathered around, they're enjoying what Jesus has provided for them, and they're enjoying this party to commemorate all that Jesus is. Before we knew that Jesus has loved Lazarus, but now we see Lazarus devoted, and he is devoted because of his own personal resurrection. So question, what would your reaction be if you were raised from the dead? What would your reaction be if you were literally in a grave for four days? What would your life turn out to be? For Lazarus, this is the last time that we see him in the New Testament. We see him here, we see him in the following few verses. But for him, the last time we see anything about him is that he is going to flee eventually, but right here, he is resting with Jesus, enjoying Jesus for all that he is, I think for me, if I was resurrected, wait a minute, I, I was, actually. So were you. You were once dead and now alive. We, we, we sang something similar to that today. We, we are resurrected people. We didn't just spend four days in a grave. We spent a lot of years in a spiritual grave thinking we were all right and thinking, oh man, th this stench is actually okay. I actually have gotten used to it by now. And yet we've been raised out from the, from the grave, called out of wherever we were, to worship, to be devoted, to rest in the finished work of Jesus. This is what Lazarus shows us today, but there is something about a near death or a fully dead experience that centers you, is there not? For anybody that's been on any, any sort of mission trip, we talked about South Asia earlier, if you go on that mission trip, if you go out into that place of the world, you will be centered, you will be aligned, the important things will all of a sudden become right here, and the less important things will fall away, at least for a season. That's why we do things like going out into the neighborhood for our breakfast, because we want our people to realize, man, like if we throw, if we all get together in the same room and we all throw our problems up in the air, we'll probably still take back our same problems. But more than that, there is a resurrection that fuels our devotion. 
Lazarus' time in devotion to Jesus, that's what we see is not just because of his time in the grave, but because of who Jesus is. If you skip down to verses 9 through 11 for Lazarus, look at what it says. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, verse 9, there in Bethany, so he's in Bethany, two miles out, the large crowds of the Jews are now swirling around Jerusalem some, some two miles away. They learned that Jesus was in Bethany. They came, not only on account of him, but also to see your boy Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans. What did they want to do? They wanted to kill Lazarus just like they wanted to kill Jesus. Why? Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. You see, the kind of life that Lazarus lived was so attractive to Jesus that, that Jesus' enemies, those who were in charge of the Sanhedrin and the temple, wanted to kill Lazarus. Does anybody want to kill us for our devotion to Jesus? Does anyone want to silence your mouth because of your devotion to Jesus? Does anybody just get sick and tired of your devotion to Jesus? For Lazarus, that was his true reality. So much so that church history will tell us that he was pushed out of what he had always known, his life in Bethany. They didn't move around in first century Israel. They had generations of homes in the same place. And all of a sudden, the Jews come into Bethany, and they go, we got to kill Lazarus. What does Lazarus do? Where is Lazarus for the rest of his life, his second life? Church history would tell us that he was made bishop of a little city on the island of Cyprus by Paul and Barnabas, and he served there for his last 30-plus years as bishop of that little city. Here's what I want you to hear in that. Lazarus died again. Lazarus died a second time. If you're calling out for a miracle, if you're waiting for God to show up in some miraculous way, I say keep calling out. But I also say that that is a temporary hope. All miracles are temporary, even the resurrection of Lazarus. So the hope there is what we find in this part of John 12, where, where Lazarus is, is just soaking up the presence of God reclining at table. There will come a day where he has to move out and become bishop of a city on an island in exile just about. There will come that day, but it will never come. He will never be able to be devoted for 30 plus years of ministry without first just resting the foot of Jesus. But he's not the only one. Martha was there. Lazarus was there. Mary was there. What the Bible says about Mary, verse three. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. I just like to say that word. <laughs> so we're sitting around in staff meeting this week and I was like, I don't even know what nard is. We start Googling it. Cassie is like, oh, it came from, comes from the Himalayan mountains. And I'm like, sure it does. Yeah, they just went out and got them from the Himalayan mountains. It actually comes from the Himalayan mountains. Like there were trade routes going into Jerusalem and this would have been worth anywhere between $25,000 and $30,000 in our money. It ain't cheap. It is a pound of nard. This is what she says, and this is what she does. She takes that expensive ointment, 
this year's worth of wages for a laborer. Expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. See, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. She took what was probably their most treasured family possession and poured it out all over Jesus. Remember, they're reclined at table. The most practical place to start is Jesus' feet. They're most accessible. The parallel accounts and the other gospels, they tell the story that Mary anointed Jesus' head. It's not either or, it's both and. She starts at his feet and just anoints his whole body. If you had a pound of expensive perfume, you probably would have enough to anoint someone's whole body. They start at his feet and go all the way up to his head. She starts with his feet, and the reality is this, that Mary gave her best for Jesus' worst. You see, too, what we're gonna find out in John 13 is that when you, when you wash someone's feet, you are taking all of the grime, all of the muck off of someone's feet that they were walking around in sandals or maybe no shoes. If you've ever been to South Asia where we go, they don't have shoes. If they do, they have really cheap sandals. And their feet, I wouldn't want to wash with my hair, mainly because my hair, I'd have to do this number. I wouldn't want to do that, even if I had long hair. Because everything that is, they've picked up along their journey is now right here. Mary gives her best for Jesus' worst. And though Jesus will wash the disciples' feet with a towel, Mary does it with her hair. And I will say this, it is not because it's laundry day in her house. She is devoting herself. I don't know about you, but there's a lot of conversation in my household about hair. Like my kids even wonder, like Moses will tell you, oh, like he used to ask me what happened to your hair, and I go, Jesus took it, I don't know. We'll have to ask him when we get there because he took it and she'll go. And so every once in a while, he'll forget the answer. He'll go, Daddy, what happened to your hair? Oh, that's right. Jesus took it. You got it, man. And so there's, there's a lot of talk about hair. I, I am married to a woman and, and many times there is talk about hair. Like, is it okay here? What about this length? And what about this color? And what do we, should, should we do with this? If you're married, you know this conversation. If you're a brother to sisters, you know this conversation. I've been having this conversation my whole life. The answer is, whatever you want, honey, looks great. If you ever wanted to know, the answer is it looks great. However it is, it's great. The answer isn't your opinion. The answer is whatever it is, it looks great. And here's why, because there is a lot of identity. If you've ever known anybody that has gone through cancer treatments for, for breast cancer, and they've, they've lost their hair, you will know a lot of a woman's identity is found in their hair. Healthy or unhealthy, that is a truth that we live in. And Mary is devoting herself, her, herself, to the worship of Jesus. And fueled to worship Jesus, Mary was immediately ridiculed by one of Jesus' best buds. His name is Judas Iscariot, and he says this in verse four and five. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii, a year's worth of wages and given to the poor? I mean, what, what is it about this? 
What is it about your worship, Mary, that, deci- that you've decided to just waste all this treasured possession on Jesus? And what I love about this is there's this implication that he has some ownership over their fa- family possessions. But he looks at it and he gives ridicule of Mary. See, if we are to be a devoted people that is fueled by resurrection, what we have to understand is that devotion, pure worship to Jesus will cost you. Devotion to Jesus will cost you. Mary's devotion to Jesus didn't make much practical sense as the nard, again, was worth about 30K today. She could have done a lot of things with that money, and Judas rightly suggests that. When I say rightly suggests that, I want you to just think about this. If someone was to pour out 30, like just, just in your mind, like pour out 30 grand on Jesus, and you would look at that and go, man, we could have done a lot of good with that. Like, it's not wrong to suggest there's a lot of good that we could do with that money. And yet, Mary doesn't care. She's sold, sold out to being devoted to who Jesus is. See, she risked her reputation as a good steward of her treasure by pouring it out on the feet of Jesus. And if you are worshiping the way Mary worshiped, you will risk the same thing. Have you ever been accused of being too generous? Yes, let's hope. But have you ever really been accused of being too generous? Or have you only been thought of as maybe too stingy? See, Mary, when we, when we follow the worship of Mary, she's being accused of being too generous with her possessions. I wanna live a life where other people are be like, dude, I don't know how you do it, but I'm glad you do. Like, praise God that you would so just give your life to the following of Jesus that you might reach other people with your pure devotion to who he is. Mary worshiped this way. I pray that we would too. Our kids, will we, will we risk their safety, put them in a place where they might reach their friends, our home, our car, our finances? We can indeed fall into the trap of thinking will we ever have enough? We could fall into a trap of trying to keep things like new, or we can lay it at the foot of Jesus. Because it is by Jesus' sacrifice for us that we have the fuel for our devotion to him. So let me just speak to any neighborhood group leaders in the house, if you're here. Will you have to repaint your walls because of the amount of kids in your house? Answer, yes. Will you lose a few possessions as a result of the chaos that could happen in your house? Answer, yes. Is it worth it? I can't answer that for you, but if it's anything other than a wholehearted yes, you're doing it wrong. It's not just about hosting your friends on a Sunday or a Friday night. It is about discipling disciples to make disciples. And whatever the cost is for that, because Jesus said there would be cost, it's worth it. Will we be taken advantage of? Yes, just as Jesus was taken advantage of. See, it wasn't just her stewardship, though, that she was risking. It was also the reality that she was risking being a woman of purity. See, by letting her hair down, which was something that we know in those days was reserved for a wife to do with her husband, I want you to just think about this. She's got her hair up. She's laying at the feet of Jesus. 
And no Jewish, well-respected Jewish woman would have laid her, taken her hair down in public. That was something reserved for husbands. She risked her reputation as a woman of purity when she lays her hair down, she lets her hair down, and then washes Jesus' feet in the ointment. Some commentators will still say that she was making inappropriate advances to Jesus. Some many years later. But this was not that. This was her most intimate gesture of worship that she could think of towards Jesus. The only way that I can think about this is this, this terrible earthquake that has happened in Indonesia. If you've, if you've watched the news, you'll, you'll know that they have found family members dead in the rubble, hugging. They've found them hugging and yet dead. That's what I think of when I think about what Mary is doing to Jesus, that there's this, this intimate gesture of devotion, that the, the, the most intimate thing that she can think of is to let her hair down and wipe his feet. There's nothing inappropriate going on. This is her heart exploding for Jesus. And some of us will have hands that serve Jesus. Some of us will have heads like Lazarus that serve Jesus. He's gonna go minister for 30 years. And some of us will have hearts that will just explode in ways that maybe our neighbors won't understand. I will say this, whatever she wore that day, whatever she put out on Jesus that day, she now will put her hair in that and the smell of whatever was on his feet and this ointment will follow her all throughout Holy Week. And so as she sees Jesus some week later being beaten and abused, she's still wearing that nard on her head and it's just reminding her that this is worth it. She's anointing him for his death, Jesus would say. We, we won't do this. We won't do this until we see Jesus for who he truly, truly is. And Mary knew who Jesus was. She too approached John, Jesus in John 11, just like her sister Martha did. But when we see her doing it in John 11, she fell at his feet. See, Mary's deep devotion for Jesus was so significant that Jesus would say this about her in parallel accounts, both in Matthew 26 and in Mark 14. You bring up Mark 14, Joseph, that'd be great. Mark 14, 9. Look at what Jesus says. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done, this anointing of my feet with her hair, with this expensive ointment, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Do you have a legacy like that of worship? Do you have a legacy of li like that, that, that whatever you've got, you're gonna pour it out on the feet of Jesus? How did Mary come to be a woman who was known by her worship of Jesus? She understood one key principle. This must be greater than that. It is a phrase I am borrowing from a historic figure in the 1940s, his name is Dietrich, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you don't know anything about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, do a simple Google search, you will find out. He was a man who was eventually captured by the Nazis and hanged in a concentration camp for his devotion to Jesus. In World War II, right as it was getting kicked off, he started a secret seminary in a town called Fickenwald. 
my best German impression of that one. It's now in Poland. But before that, he created radical disciples. Before he died, he created radical disciples. It is in this place where his secret seminary was born that he wrote books called Life Together and The Cost of Discipleship. If you've not read those books, read them. Put them on your list. He wrote those books there. It's at that seminary that his friend comes to visit him and they tell him, hey man, your seminary is like way too intense. Like this is getting out of hand. Like they worship and they pray and that's all your people do. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer gets his buddy, they get into a boat, they row across the river, they head up on top of a hill and they look out into Germany from modern day Poland and, they, and Bonhoeffer explains to his buddy, he goes, do you see what this is? And he sees the Nazi army getting ready for war and there are planes landing and there are tanks getting made ready to bring tyranny upon the earth. And Bonhoeffer used that as fuel when he was forming his disciples because he understood that Hitler was forming disciples of hardness and cruelty. And because of their dedication to their cause, it was necessary to propose a superior discipline, uh, disciples of life of, amongst the Christians. If the Nazis are gonna be defeated, Bonhoeffer had a deep convi conviction that those he was training needed to be stronger than their potential tormentors. And he told his friend at the top of that hill as they looked over into Germany, this must be greater than that. That's the kind of devotion that we need in today's churches. Because they got back into the boat and as the story goes, they rowed back to his seminary in silence. See, Mary knew that Jesus was not syncretistic. That's my second big word. He didn't just, he's not, he's not a God that just folds everyone in as if to say, it's cool if you worship these other things as long as you also worship Jesus. No, he's exclusivistic. That's not even a word. He's exclusive. Right? I mean, he didn't say, if you want to gain life, add me to whatever you've already got. Nor did he say, add into me anything else you want to bring to the table. No, he said, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's either or, not both and. He is an exclusive savior. You and I cannot fold whatever else we hold on to for life and security and comfort and power into Christ. No other organization, no other pursuit, no other hobby, no other amount of money, no amount of feeding the poor, as Judas would say, is a substitute for loving Jesus. I want to use a word here. I want you to understand the biblical implications behind it. Beloved, it's an intimate word I can only use to get your attention. Beloved, do not compromise your devotion to Jesus by trying to fold anything into your worship of Jesus. This is a strong and dangerous place to be. And I put that before you with my inner Jack Nicholson in me. Was it danger? Was it grave danger? Would you explain it as grave danger? Is there any other kind? Grave. Grave danger comes upon those who want to fold in 
any worship of any other thing into being devoted to Jesus. And this is where I lost it on Friday as I was preparing for today because I, I got to lead you into this. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10. If you've got a Bible, turn there. What's at the top of 1 Corinthians 10? What's the little heading? Speak to me now. Warning against idolatry. Paul's writing. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud. He's referring to the nation of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud. And all were baptized into Moses, in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate spiritual food. And they all drank the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. He was there, y'all. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased For they were overthrown in the wilderness. What were they overthrown by? They saw God defeat the most powerful nation on the planet. They're being provided for in the desert by God himself. And they were mostly overthrown in the desert. And God was not pleased with most of them. Now these things took place, y'all, as examples for us. We need to learn that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters of some of them, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's a reference to what happened right after they made a golden calf, a.k.a. life went on. It was no big deal. We must not indulge in sexual morality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Do we, do we take the holiness of God seriously? We must not put Christ to the test, verse 9, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the angel of death, the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, he repeats, but they were written down. They were written down for our instruction. Let us learn from their example on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee. 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 
Not flirt with idol- from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, the Lord's Supper, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. We're family. We're all, we're all participating in what Jesus has done. We're all connected. If one of us goes and does this, we're, we're all in this. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, 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 no. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer, what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Why do I get so emotional over that? Because we are so prone to wander. We are so prone to give up our souls to lesser things. And we might just sweep it under the rug and be like, oh, we're all struggling. Yeah, they were struggling in Corinth too and Paul wrote to them and said, don't give yourself up to demons. Grave danger. Grave danger. Let us be a devoted people. Like Mary Gave everything she had, the moment she had it, for the worship of Jesus. And when we do this, this little voice will call out to us. This little voice will say, hey, I don't think he's worth that. This little voice will start to call out to us and go, couldn't we do more with our life? Isn't there other things that kind of would accomplish more like feeding the poor? Can't we just, like, like getting really busy doing really good things? There's a little voice will call out to us and we've got to understand who it is. It's Judas who sits at the table. That's why I got it in quotes. If it's up on the screen, Judas is Judas. But for Judas, he's in us. He's calling out to us while we recline at table, while we're, while we're worshiping him, but giving everything we have to our following Jesus and Jesus alone, the voice of Judas will tempt us and call out to us and say, you should be busy doing other things. He's really not that important. The voice of Judas will call out to us to just not just be busy or to think about being busy, but to be okay with just thinking about the needs of people and never doing anything. The voice of, that's what Judas is doing. Hey, can we do more with this food? I mean, with this, with this money, we could feed the poor. And John tells us he has no intention of feeding the poor. He just wants to take some coin for himself. Should we, should we worship Jesus with such reckless abandonment to him? Or should we hold some stuff back? For ourselves or for others? 
The voice of Jesus within all of us will say to hold something back. The voice of Judas, not the voice of Jesus, the voice of Judas, to hold something back because Jesus isn't worth it. Reminded of an interview that I watched of a band that you may or may not care for. It was on PBS some years ago when they did Austin City Limits. It was with Coldplay. With all the hits that they were kind of had back to back on all these different albums, the interviewer asked them, hey, do you ever think about like holding some of these back for a future album? And I don't remember who it was in their band, but he said, if we hold something back for the future, we will never know what today was meant for. I want you to get that. That is profound for us Christians. If we hold something back to give to Jesus in the future, we will never know what, why God gave it for him right now. We will never know. To be present, to be here, to be in the moment. See, the voice of Judas will not just say, yes, you should hold something back, but the vo voice of Judas will also look at whatever you give to Jesus and say, this could be better. We could do this better. You get cynical and critical and you go, this could be better. You know, we could have done a whole lot of good with all that money. Friends, let's get busy doing what we can with what we have. Let's give God what we have. Let's pray what we've got and let's put away the idolatrous thought that we'll just wait until we have a better plan before we do anything. Let's get our hands dirty. Let's fail forward in our devotion to Jesus with full hearts that God is going to do something faithful and good and right for us, through us, to us, and with us. Because what will happen when God creates a society that is Jesus' center? Jesus is the center of that society. It's always been his desire from the people of Egypt to, now, or to the people of Israel to now the people of God's church to be this, this new place where God dwells by his spirit. And we do weird things. We don't fit in. We do weird things like sell everything we've got and, 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 and be devoted to one another and sell everything we've got and be devoted to Jesus. We don't hold back. We give. We worship. Because we know that God is faithful to provide what we have and to provide what we will have in the future. Will we be people like Martha who served, like Lazarus who reclined, like Mary who poured it all out for Jesus, or will we sit back and go, this could be better. It's not worth all this. Our lives, our true spiritual and eternal lives are at stake with how we answer that, not with our lips, with everything we have, will we follow? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, when Judas raised his voice and said all these things, you said to her, to him, leave her alone. I pray that we would all silence the voice of Judas with your words. Leave us alone. We have a purpose in all that we are, we have a purpose in all that we have, and that is to anoint you as God and King and Lord over our lives. For we will always have the poor amongst us. We will always have good things to do. But not at the expense of worshiping and following 
you, O Lord. Help us learn from our forefathers who fell dead in the desert because they sold themselves to lesser things like complaining, satisfying their own intimate needs, rebelling against God's leadership and God's plan for their eventual provision in a future land. Now that future land has come in Jesus. That future promise has come in Jesus. That future bread that they, that they ate off the ground has come in the bread of life in Jesus. That, that water that they drank out of the rock has now come with the living water in Jesus. Will we feast? Help us. Help us not give ourselves over to lesser things. Nothing worth that. And so when that little voice pops up and says, hey, why don't you come on back to the grave? It ain't worth it. Let us silence it with your words. Leave us alone. We belong to the God who came to rescue his people. And we recline at table where we worship and we serve with hands that worship the God who came to serve us. Let us sing now with these truths in our hearts that you are a resurrecting God. You've come to give us life. Not some faint representation of life, but the truest source of life that we could ever have. Help us remember these things, oh God. It's in Christ's name. Amen.